بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So what we're going to do today inshallah ta'ala is we're going to do a little bit more of the book we're not going to do too much and then we're going to try to conclude with relate or we're going to try to conclude what uh, relates to our discussion on the madhab uh, the benefits the harms and uh, how to get the most out of it and avoid the pitfalls the next chapter in kitab al-bayr is al-khiyar and i haven't done that i've decided to just skip over it um, al-khiyar is the issue of the what we would probably term uh, refunds basically the the choice to re- to return back or to undo the transaction the the choice to undo the transaction so the ability for someone to say i no longer want this thing that i've bought i would like to return my money or for the owner to say i no longer want to sell you this thing i will return your money that is known as al khiyar and there are lots of different uh, discussions on it um, the right to a refund if your product is damaged the right to a refund if you haven't left the premises the right to a refund if you've agreed on it beforehand as a condition of the sale and he talks about all of these different things uh, i decided to skip over that because the next chapter is more important and that is babur riba the chapter of ar riba if you think about it in islam there are only very limited number of things which are haram when it comes to buying and selling there are only a limited number of things there aren't very many things which are haram but the things which are haram are like principles which many 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 different types of transactions fall under so one of the things which is from the major elements of haram in in transactions is for example al-gharar uncertainty not knowing what you are buying not knowing what you are selling not knowing who is going to get what and underneath that there are many many different examples there is there is the example for example of bay al mulamasa and this is kind of like you know one of these things that whatever you lay your hands on you're going to buy so people often uh, we don't really we don't so much have that in the shops but where you might find things like that is in the fairground you pay 10 dirhams you get a, a stick whatever your your stick touches whichever duck your stick touches or whichever thing it, it it touches you you get you get it whatever is written on it this is something the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam made haram because of uncertainty you don't know what you're getting many of the scholars put insurance under the under the category of uncertainty 
Because you do, you're paying for something you don't know whether you're going to benefit a huge amount from or you're going to benefit nothing at all from. You may pay insurance for a month and claim 200,000 dirhams from it. You may pay it for 20 years and claim absolutely nothing. So this is an example of uncertainty. And there are various different things in Islam which are forbidden in terms of transactions. One of them that we're going to study today and it is one of the most important is riba The topic of riba. And I don't find a good word to translate riba to. If you translate riba as interest, then you are definitely deficient in describing what riba is. Although interest is a kind of riba, as we're going to hear today, interest is by no means the only kind of riba. And likewise, uh, some people uh, use another word. They use the word usury or usury. And again, I think this word is also inappropriate. And the reason that it's inappropriate is that the word usury in modern terms, in a modern dictionary, refers to excessive interest. Meaning that, or the way that they have come to understand it is, that if the interest is very small, just a, a point something of a percent, one percent, one point five percent, it's called interest. And if it's huge, like twenty percent, seventeen percent, twenty-five percent, they call it usury. This Islamically doesn't doesn't match the Shari definition of what riba is. So we need to I, I think there isn't a great term for it. You can use interest if you're talking about interest. Like you can say Allah made interest haram. If that's the discussion and you're talking about loans and you say Allah made interest haram, no problem. But to define riba as interest, in my opinion, is a little bit, it's missing a lot of things. And the first thing the author says is he says, riba naw'an, riba fadlin wa riba nasi'a. There are two types of riba. Riba al-fadl and riba al-nasi'a. This is the first problem with defining riba as interest. Because if you define it as interest, you exclude an entire category of riba, which is riba al-fadl. And even in the topic of riba al-nasi'a, you don't cover absolutely everything. But you can, you know, if you said riba nasi'a is interest, you're, you're getting near to the, to the topic. So what does riba mean in the language? Riba in the language means an increase. Like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, فَلَا Allah. Whatever riba you take, it's not riba in the sight of Allah. 
and the statement of Allah riba wa sadaqat. And this perhaps is the easiest one to remember. Allah makes riba restricted. He takes away the barakah from it. He takes away the profit from it. sadaqat. Allah puts riba in sadaqah. So if somebody asks you which kind of riba is halal, the riba that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts in, as-sadaqah, sadaqat Allah puts riba in sadaqah. Allah puts riba in sadaqah. What does it mean Allah puts riba in sadaqah? Yani Allah gives you an increase in your wealth in return for yani this sadaqah that you give. You get more back than what you gave. So Allah put riba in sadaqah. As for the riba that the people know of, riba al-fadl and riba al-nasi'ah, then this riba, this fala yarbu Allah. It has no riba in the sight of Allah. There is no increase, there is no barakah in it in the sight of Allah. And there are two types. Riba al-nasi'ah is the one which was known by Quraysh and is known by us generally uh, as interest. Even though again, I don't think that's a comprehensive definition, but it's the one that is known as interest. I.e. to take an increase in payment in return for, uh, to take an increase in return for a delay in payment. This is riba nasi'ah. But what we want to talk about today is the first category which a lot of people are not aware of. And that is riba al-fadl. And riba al-fadl was not known by the Arabs in the time of Jahiliyyah. It is something that was prohibited in Islam and was not known by the Arabs in, in Jahiliyyah. They did not consider it to be riba and it was not known by the name riba. So the author goes on to describe what riba al-fadl is. Al-fadl also means an increase, like the extra. And he said, it is forbidden for everything which is measured by volume and weight to be sold for the same category or the same type of thing when there is a difference in that volume or a difference in that weight. So let's take it step by step. It is haram and riba is a kabira from the kabair. It is a major sin from the major sins. The example of riba al-fadl is that anything which is makil, anything which is measured by volume, and anything which is measured by weight. How do we know what is measured by volume and what is measured by weight? What is measured by volume, and he mentions this uh, later on, uh, but in terms of the madhab, what is mentioned by volume are those things which were measured 
by volume in the time of the Prophet ﷺ in Medina. Those things which were measured by volume, by sa' and by mud and so on and by whisk those things which are measured by volume today we would measure them in liters or you know similar sort of things and it's important that today because of the accuracy of weighing a lot of things that used to be measured by volume are now measured by weight however this is Shara'an, we don't take this into account. For Rib al-Fadl, whatever was measured by volume in the time of the Prophet ﷺ in Medina, this is what we consider to be measured by volume. And whatever is measured by weight, the madhab, whatever was measured by weight by the Prophet ﷺ in Makkah, Whatever was measured by weight in Makkah. So there are some things that used to be measured by, by weight. And let me give you an example of what's changed. For example, dates. Now when you buy dates, you buy dates by the kilo, right? You buy dates that are measured in weight. But dates were always measured by volume. That's why in the zakah, zakat, uh, zakat uh, al-fitr, for example, sa'an min tamr, a sa' of tamr, yani three liters of dates. Dates were always measured in volume. Now dates are measured in weight. What do we count for rib al-fadl? We look at the origin. Tayyip, what about those things? that were not known in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. Oranges, for example. Oranges were not known at that time. Nobody ate an orange. Oranges in that, in that region, the Arabs in that region, in Makkah and Medina, they didn't have such things as oranges. So in this, we go back to the urf of the people who sell them. We go back to al-urf, and what is commonly understood by the people who sell them. Is it the case that it was always sold in volume, or it was the case that it was always sold in weight? And whichever of the two it was, we go, we go with that. We go with that. So, let's give an example of riba al-fadl. You take something that is makil. So we're going to use the example of dates. Dates used to be measured by volume. And you sell them for dates. Dates for dates. And this is the one that we talked about, Muqayyava, the, the, the bartering. You sell dates for dates. Rib al-Fadl comes in whenever there is a difference, even if it is a tiny difference, between the two things. So for example, I say, or let's say a man says, 
I want a saw of dates and I'm going to give you two saw of my dates. You give me a saw of your dates and in return I will give you two saw of my dates. And this is riba, riba al-fadl. Someone might say, what about if the quality of the dates is different? Because the whole reason he's exchanging one for two is because his dates are of a poor quality and the one, his dates are of a good quality. This is where Islam made it forbidden to, to barter. In this case, you exchange it for something else as a medium. Like you use, for example, money as a medium. So you buy the good dates for a certain amount of money and then you sell in a separate transaction, you sell the bad dates for a certain amount of money. But you don't exchange good dates for bad dates. Or you don't exchange uh, a saw for a saw and a half. Or a saw for a saw and a mud. One saw for one saw. The next thing that must be present to avoid riba in dates for dates is that it must be done at the time. So also an example of riba would be a saw of dates today for a saw of dates next week. So it has to be exchanged hand to hand at the time. My saw of dates now for your saw of dates now. And it has to be that each person takes possession of the item at the time. I mean, the, the one person takes his saw of dates, he gives it to him, he takes his saw of dates and he takes it from him. So Islam prohibited that you sell dates for dates unless the volume is equal. Taib, what about today when we measure dates in kilograms? Can I exchange a kilogram of dates for a kilogram of dates? No. Because it was measured in volume in the time of the Prophet ﷺ and the volume of the dates will differ. So a volume of a kilogram of uh, ajwa dates is different from a kilogram of, for example, Ambari dates. The volume will be different. And so even doing a kilogram for a kilogram is riba. Even a kilogram of uh, Ajwa dates for a kilogram of Ambari dates is riba. Because it used to be measured by volume. And if you look at the volume, Ambari dates are, you know, big, huge, big dates. And Ajwa dates are tiny dates the volume is not going to be the same even if the weight is the same the volume may not be the same so it has to be by volume dates for dates okay what if I want to sell a kilogram of dates for a kilogram of dates we use money as a intermediary and I sell you a kilogram of ambari dates for 50 dirhams and you then sell me a kilogram of ajwa dates for 50 dirhams, no problem. But it's not the case that we swap dates for dates. 
That's one example of something which is weighed by volume. But there are many, many examples of things which were weighed by volume. The uh, different kinds of things like wheat and barley and all of these things that used to be weighed by volume. If you want to exchange dates for dates or wheat for wheat or barley for barley, it has to be equal volume. Equal volume for equal volume on the same, at the same time, hand to hand. What about something that was weighed? Something that is weighed. This includes gold and silver and other things that are measured by weight. Other things that are measured by weight. So likewise, if it is measured by weight, you can only exchange gold for gold for exactly the same weight. And if it is measured by weight, exactly the same. For example, if, if uh, there's a particular metal that is measured by weight, then you exchange equal for equal, hand to hand at the time. If you don't do that, then if you can't do that because one of them is valuable and one of them is less valuable and one of them is good quality and one of them is not good quality, then what do you do? You sell one for currency or for something else, gold for dates or you know, gold for wheat or gold for barley or gold for money and then you purchase it from that person in a separate transaction. In a separate transaction. And this has very practical examples in our time. Even though we don't barter much in our time, there's, there's not so much exchange of goods for goods. It's very important, sort of one of the examples that I come across a lot is old gold for new gold. A lot of the gold shops will exchange old gold for new gold. But it will not be the same, it will not be the same amount. Because old gold is not worth the same as new gold. So you will go in and they will take old gold as a payment for or towards new gold. And this is not permissible. This is riba al-fadl. What you have to do is you sell them the old gold for cash and then you take that cash and you purchase new gold from them. But as for exchanging old gold for new gold, then this will not be permissible since they will not exchange it equal for equal. Because in their mind, old gold is of lower value and new gold is of higher value. So they will not, they will not exchange it equal for equal. One gram for one gram. And you bring me one gram of old gold and I will bring you one gram of new gold. No, they will bring you half a gram of old gold and they will, give you one, or they will bring you half a gram of new gold in return for one gram of old gold or whatever their rate is. This is not allowed. It has to be weight for weight, equal for equal. Otherwise, you have to involve something different. Gold for dates, no problem. Gold for wheat, no problem. Wheat for dates, no problem. But not dates for dates and wheat for wheat and gold for gold and so on. He said here, even if it is a very small amount, even if it is two dates for one date. 
So even if someone says, I will yani, sell you or whatever, swap you or whatever, two dates for one date. This is also comes under riba al-fadl. It comes under riba al-fadl. And that's not from the point of a gift, like as in someone says, oh, you know, take my two dates, okay, you take this one. Like, it's, not like a, it's not from the point of view of a gift, but from the point of view of buying and selling. Even if it is one date for two dates. The author then goes on to say It is allowed Meaning it is allowed to exchange dates for dates And gold for gold And body for yani Anything which is weighed in volume Anything which is weighed in uh, by Anything which is measured by volume Anything which is measured by weight It's allowed to exchange As long as it is exactly equal As long as it is exactly equal Or you change the type Meaning that you sell dates for barley or wheat for gold or metal for oranges or something like that. Steel for oranges or salt for sugar. There is no issue with this. There is no issue with this. But it has to be if you are exchanging sugar for sugar or salt for salt or wheat for wheat or barley for barley or dates for dates then it has to be exactly equal in uh, in its measurement whether that is a measurement of volume whether that is a measurement of weight and by volume and weight we go back to the time of the Prophet so we can't switch and say I'm now going to measure my dates in kilograms no problem, measure them in kilograms if it's for money. But don't measure them in kilograms if you are swapping dates for dates. It has to be measured by volume. But he said it is allowed. بِغَيْرِهِ مُطْلَقًا It's absolutely allowed to exchange something for something different. As long as the exchange is made before the two people part. And this is to stop riba. And nasi'ah. And when you, you know, you say like, when you have delays in payment and things like that. So when you swap, you, it must be done hand. When you barter, it must be done hand for hand. They make one exception to this. And this exception. Is, 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 a, is a little bit of a complicated mas'ala uh, it's an issue of uh, something called al-araya so this is basically an exception to the rule and it is or before that we should say before we do that we should clarify something that rib al-fadl also includes when those things are of different, at different stages. For example, dry fruit versus uh, ripe uh, fruit, like grapes and raisins. 
Likewise, you can't exchange grapes for uh, raisins and so on because of this issue. There is an exception which we said, which the Prophet ﷺ made. And that exception is when you have, it's a very limited exception and it applies to dates. It is when there are on the tree, there are rutab, there are soft uh, soft, just newly ripe dates on the tree and the person who wants to buy them he's in need of them and he wants to buy them he doesn't have any money so he agrees to pay in dry dates which are not the same any which are not uh, the dry dates and the rutab will not come to the same volume and you can't measure rutab, soft dates, because they're on the tree. You can't like you can't measure it now in a in a uh, like in a bag or something like that. So what they do is they estimate, or they they know because of their experience how many how much this would be in dry dates. So they say, I will sell you this rutab, exchange it for dry dates, but they do it by Estimating what that rutab would be in the amount of that rutab would be in dry dates, but it has to be less than five whisk. It has to be less than five ausuk, five whisk, and a whisk, as we remembered last time, is sixty sar. Sixty sar. Six zero. So that means a total of 300 sar. And this exchange has to be less than and equal to or less than 300 sar. And it's an exchange which is normally not allowed. And it's normally not allowed because the two will not be equal. Why is it not allowed to exchange soft dates for hard dates? Because the two will not be, you, you cannot get them, they are both dates, but you cannot get them to both be equal. You cannot measure a saw of raisins and a saw of grapes and get them to be the same. You will end up giving more grapes than he gave grapes and more, or more raisins than he gave raisins. You, cannot, you will not be able to make it equal. So if you want to sell grapes for raisins, you have to do it by means of money or by means of something else in the middle. But the exception to that is because of, it seems that this was made because of need. That it was regularly the case that people had a need, they didn't have money and they needed uh, soft dates from the trees. So because they were able to estimate the, the, the volume in dry dates, they are effectively exchanging dry dates for dry dates. But they're doing it by looking at it and saying this rutab on this tree will generally come to 30 sar of 30 sar of, of dry dates so 30 sar of dry dates you give me and I will give you these rotab which will, equivalent, which will be the equivalent of 30 sar of dry dates this is on the condition that the person doesn't have any money to exchange if he has money then he has to sell him the rotab for cash and then he will sell him the dates uh, likewise The author then says, it is not allowed 
to sell anything measured by volume with something that is min jinsihi, yani that is the same type of thing. So we said you can't sell raisins for grapes, you can't sell rutab for tamar, any soft dates for hard dates. Because the two, you will not be able to make them equal. It's not possible to make them equal. And to avoid rib al-fadl, you have to have, they have to be equal in both things. And likewise the same. It is also not allowed to sell something that is measured, to exchange something measured with volume in weight, and to exchange something measured in weight with volume. Which we said So it's not allowed to exchange a kilo of dates For a kilo of dates Rather you have to exchange A sa' of dates A liter of dates Or three liters of dates Or ten liters of dates For ten liters of dates You can't exchange a kilo For a kilo couple more points inshallah ta'ala before we finish up Here he, uh, he talks about how riba nasi'a can fall into this same type of riba al-fadl or how, it can, how you can get into the other type of riba in the same sort of thing that we're talking about. And that is, and by, I mean riba nasi'a, the word nasi'a from a nasa which means to delay. Because as we said, it is to get an increase in payment in return for a delay in pain. He said, it is not allowed to sell something that is measured in volume for something measured in volume if there is a delay. So for example, a saw of dates this week for a saw of dates next week.
And he said this falls into riba and nasi'ah. It falls into the other kind of riba, which is the, the riba of what we, what we commonly term interest. And that's why I said to you that the word interest is not a great word for it. Because I don't think that linguistically we would call this interest. If, for example, I say, you give me a bag of dates this week and I'll give you a bag of dates back next week. I don't think that we would call this interest in, our, in, in, in English. But it, co- it falls under riba and nasi'a in terms of the sharia of Islam. It falls under riba and nasi'a. So he said, like selling something in volume for something in volume or something which is measured for something which is measured in return for a delay. In return for a delay. He said, unless it is gold, silver or currency, in which case it is valid. What did we say is invalid? We have a, a saw of dates. And I say that I will pay you back next week with a saw of dates. We said that this is a kind of riba and nasi'a, a kind of interest. What is allowed is, give me a hundred dirhams this week and I will pay you back with a hundred dirhams next week. This is allowed as long as the amounts are equal. He then goes on to talk about one more issue, which is the exchange of gold for silver and silver for gold. So is it allowed to exchange gold for silver? What we call musarafa, any currency exchange. Gold for silver, pounds for dollars, silver for gold, dirhams for rupees for example. Is it allowed for us to do this? He says yes. As long as it is done in the same majlis. Meaning it's done at the time. Take my pounds, I take your dollars. But if the two separate, the transaction becomes invalid. Meaning that if I give pounds and come back next week and collect my dollars, then the transaction is invalid. It has to be done at the same time. And it has to be, I take my dollars, I give the pounds. So currency exchange is allowed with conditions. One of the conditions of currency exchange is that it should be done in place. And there's a lot of masail after that. We talk about what if you do it on the internet, what does it mean to do. These are all more complicated things than are mentioned in the book. But we want to talk about the basic idea which is that it should be you take my dollars, I take your pounds. Hand to hand in the same sitting. And not, you take my dollars this week, I'll come back three weeks later and take your pounds. That is how it, that is how it should be. (laughs) 
Notice that the author doesn't go into a huge amount of detail other than that. And that's because, like the scholars say, the masail of riba are really complicated. In fact, some of the scholars said, the sheikh was explaining this book, that I studied this book from, he was explaining this book um, from his audio. The sheikh, he said, that this, the masail of riba are some of the most complicated issues. And so this is an example of how the, the, you have the tadarruj in the madhab. You go step by step by step by step by step by step by step. This is an example of that. And it's a good example of how you just take baby steps. You start by just understanding the most basic concepts. The most basic concept of riba al-fadl is you have two things, dates and dates. And what you are doing is you end up breaking the rules by the way that you barter dates for dates or the way that you barter gold for gold or wheat for wheat or whatever. By just understanding these basic things, you have taken a little bit of the topic of riba. In the more complicated books, they will mention many more masail on the topic of riba. And then again, and then again and again and again until you build up to a really complicated and complex picture of riba because riba can be quite complicated especially because of the presence of uh, what we term hiyal what are sort of like loopholes where people try to find loopholes in the sharia so what they do is they say you know they, they invent a kind of a a, a, a financial vehicle or a financial transaction whereby it appears to be a valid transaction but the purpose of that transaction is riba so it's important that we instead of starting with the really complicated things and I didn't want to start today with the really really complicated issues of, of riba and what constitutes riba and what doesn't constitute riba wanted to start off with just some basic ideas of riba so we didn't cover much of riba nasia because it gets a little bit complicated and the author doesn't cover much of it. We only covered riba nasia as it relates to dates for dates with a delay in payment. But other than that, we didn't get too much into, into that kind of riba. We just covered the basic uh, understanding of riba al-fadl. And that's enough to begin with. And that's how we should study. And this is why I wanted to do this chapter with you guys. Is because I feel that this is how we need to study. We need not to try to take too many issues in one go and get ourselves uh, confused. Because the, especially in transactions, it can be complicated. One of the most complicated things in transactions is the fact that most or there, are, there, is, there, are very, there is very little by way of evidence this is one of the hard things in transactions is that in terms of evidence you have just a few basic principles a few hadith you don't have a lot that's why generally if you look at the chapter on, on buying and selling versus the chapter on salah the chapter on salah in any, any fiqh or any hadith book will be big and the chapter on buying and selling will be relatively small and the fact that with buying and selling, things are always changing. 
with salah, salah is salah. It's the same salah that we prayed 1400 years ago, it's the same salah that we pray now. But in the marketplace, things are changing all the time. People are always trying to find new ways of uh, forming transactions and new ways of, uh, of buying and selling things. And so we have to be, we have to apply a lot of usul, a lot of principles, a lot of understanding, a lot of qiyas, comparing one thing to another. And so this chapter is a little bit challenging. And riba especially, because like we said, it has, there are some examples that all of us know are riba. You know, if somebody says, give me a hundred you know, if give me a hundred dirhams today and I'll give you back a hundred and twenty tomorrow. All of us know that this is riba. And this is not the difficult thing. But there are a lot of very, very subtle things that are quite complicated. And almost everybody asks all the time about banking transactions and the, the, the ways the bank structure loans and, you know, their ideas of, you know, this, this thing they call like this tamwil, like getting, getting money from money and you know, all of this issue. This is very complicated and it's difficult to get, a str- to get a good answer with regard to it. But what we do is we start by building on basic foundations. We basically understood that riba is of two types. There is a riba which relates to bartering, any exchanging goods for goods. And there is a riba which relates to delays in payment. The riba which relates to bartering we have covered today. Riba al-Fadl. And we've covered what you're not allowed to do And what you are allowed to do And we've covered just one or two examples Of the riba that relates to a delay in payment Like as we said One sar of dates this week And I'll pay you back with one sar of dates Next week But the rest of the details The further you go on studying the more details you will get, the more you will understand. And inshaAllah ta'ala, you also take it from, you know, it's important to take it from somebody who is really well versed in, in Islamic transactions. And someone also with the right approach. That's why I, I only taught a bit of it. I taught the bit of it that I'm, I'm comfortable with and then we stopped. Uh, because, again, a lot of the experts in Islamic finance are all drinking from the same glass so to speak and they're all they're all learning from the same set of principles and those principles in my opinion are fundamentally flawed to begin with the whole concept of Islamic finance in much of the world today is completely flawed from beginning to end the usul that it stands upon are flawed because often it is built upon the usul of al-hiyal That it's allowed to make a loophole That it's allowed to make a transaction which is riba As long as it doesn't look like riba And these are usul that, that the vast majority of Islamic financial contracts today are built upon That it is allowed to put your net out on a Friday And pick it up on a Sunday and say I didn't fish on Saturday that is what all Islamic banking in the world is built upon today. Put your net out on a, sun, on a Friday, pick it up on a Sunday, and tell people I didn't fish on a Saturday. And there are some of the ulama that said this is permissible, and that's why they, you know, that's why it's been taken up so, 
so much. And there are some of the madahib and some of the mashayikh yani who consider this to be permissible. And that is why it has been taken up so much. But so much of Islamic finance has been built upon this principle, upon this idea. Not just this idea, but many other very, you know, very sort of detailed issues. That understanding it, you really need someone who is very, very, uh, uh, very, very uh, knowledgeable on the topic and has the right approach. Not somebody who's just knowledgeable on the topic or he's got a doctorate in Islamic finance, but he's going along with the rest of the people and he's going along with the concept of hiyal, that you can, you know, twist the sharia and you can, you know, you can change the wording and you can just, you know, make this like this and you can just turn this around and then it will be fine. But somebody who genuinely tries to adhere to the commands that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed in the Quran and the Sunnah of the Messenger sallallahu wasallam, And that's not easy to find. Because as I said, you find that generally, uh, and, and to a certain extent you can understand why it happens. At the end of the day, a bank is not an Islamic institution. It's not a charity. It's a business. And of course, you look for the staff that are going to promote your business, right? You look for the staff that are going to help your business to grow. And if you are paying staff to give you fatawa about what's permissible and what's not permissible, of course you look for staff that have a model of working that is going to suit your business. That's not like, it's not like some terrible conspiracy. It's just the natural way that the market goes. And the problem then is you have institutions that churn these staff out. You have huge universities that churn out these people who are trained in Islamic finance and are all saying the same thing because they're all being churned out by institutes that are promoting the exact same thing. Whereas to go and find people who are really willing to understand the issue as Allah revealed it and to stick to the Sharia and not look at the commercial concerns. Those people exist, there are many of them. But of course they are not taken up by the industry because the industry, why would you want to bring somebody in who's going to restrict what you can do? Why would you want to bring somebody in who's going to cancel two-thirds of your products and say these are all riba? You can't have them. You're not going to bring that person in. You're not going to get that person to regulate you or to you know, become... And this issue of self-regulation as well. It's a big problem. Who regulates what's Sharia compliant? In a world which is built upon interest. Who regulates what's Sharia compliant? Not the ulama. Any... The, the, the banks themselves regulate what is Sharia compliant and what isn't. So this is a big, big problem. But it's a problem that comes about also, and to be fair to them, they will argue that it comes about through a system that is built upon riba. We live in a world where the entire world's economy is built from beginning to end upon riba. And some of these Islamic banks are trying very hard. Wallahi, yani, I, I'll, I'll say that with all honesty. Yani, some of them are really trying to do something different. But you're living and working and establishing something in an environment which is built upon riba. And in reality, it's, very, it's not impossible to make a profit as an Islamic bank. Because there are Islamic banks in the world that are truly Islamic and that make a profit. It's not impossible to make a profit. But it's not easy as well. Islam didn't make it easy to make a profit from being a bank. Islam didn't make that easy. 
And Islam has not made it easy to make it profitable to lend people money. Islam has made that very, very difficult to do. It's not impossible. There are ways that you can invest in things and you can get a return in the investment and you can, you know, there are certain transactions you can do. But Islam has not made it easy to make a profit from lending people money. And for that reason, the circumstances are very difficult. What should we do? My general advice to you outside of the book, Wallahi, is this. There is no doubt that we have to use banks, right? You can't basically live if you don't have a bank account, generally. I mean, maybe someone who is single, living at home with their parents or whatever. But as soon as you have responsibility to pay for an apartment and pay bills, you need a bank account. And you need a bank account to keep your money safe. Go with the best that's available. At least go with an Islamic bank. At least they are, you know, they are better. Even the Islamic banks are not equal. Some of them are really, you know, trying. Even though we have a lot of criticisms of a lot of the things. But they are, you know, they are trying. They are making an effort to keep it as Islamic as possible. At least put your money with them is better than you putting it in an interest-based bank. And as it comes to loans and credit cards and personal finance and mortgages, avoid, avoid, avoid. Wallahi, there is, you know, there is, yes, it's possible that you might find one that does it in the Sharia compliant way, but it's very difficult. And it's at best a gray area and at worst haram. So my advice is avoid these personal loans, credit cards, Islamic credit cards, Islamic finance, Islamic car loans and anything else that involves taking money from the bank in, in an Islamic way. Generally, whatever you can do, avoid it. And try to find alternatives. And wallahi, they're usually, you know, for someone who looks, there are alternatives. If you're starting a business, the alternative is look for an investor. Look for someone who's going to look at the beauty of investment. Everyone wins. The investor puts in the money, you put in the effort, and they both come out with a, you both come out with profit. The investor makes money, and you make money, inshallah. So this is something which is also, you know, encourage investment, encourage people to invest in other people's projects. Encourage Qard uh, Hassan, the, you know, a good loan, a loan that is not based upon a sadaqah-based loan, where you give someone some money and you say, okay, just pay me back what it is that you gave me. Some people might say, well, what if you do that? If you pay me back only what you gave me, I will lose because of inflation. That's true, but you will gain in terms of ajr. Islam does not account for inflation and it's not allowed for you to account for inflation. This is one of the shubahat. They will say to you that money decreases in value so I'm only asking for the same value of my money. Just like we said a kilo of dates can't be sold for a kilo of dates. Likewise you can't adjust the value of money for, in, for inflation. If you took a hundred dirhams you give back a hundred dirhams. Even if that hundred dirhams is only worth ninety dirhams in practical terms of what you can buy a hundred dirhams a hundred dirhams back so the qard hasan is also uh, a, a beneficial way where people who have a little bit extra give a goodly loan to people who have a little bit less and they expect the reward that will come from Allah Azza wa Jal in doing so of course this leads to another problem which is the problem of a loss of amana because with the loss of amana people have stopped giving Qard Hassan because they have said that every time I mean if you speak to people who give Qard Hassan ask them how much they got back 
Like sometimes they'll say like I've given like a hundred thousand. Some of them will say I've given a million dirhams in Qard Hassan. And what I've got back is like ten thousand dirhams. Because the reality is that people have taken, have lost the amana. But there are ways. I mean, we should follow the proper Sharia rules about writing contracts, the proper Sharia rules about having witnesses, and take responsibility that paying back when people. And I think this leads, it comes from a bigger problem. It comes from a society where debt is encouraged. Look at how the Prophet ﷺ used to be. Look at how much he used to discourage debt. He would refuse to pray a janazah over someone who died with debt if that debt was halal, halal, not haram, not river debt. He would not pray the janazah of a person who died with halal debt. Halal debt. Now that doesn't mean the janazah would not be prayed, but he would not pray it. He would not take part in a janazah of someone who died with debt. Because look at the danger it brings you. We're living in a society where we feel everything should be with debt. I, I need a new car, no problem, I will, pay, I will get it on debt. I need a house, no problem, I will get it on debt. Instead of this principle of saving up money and just buying what you can afford and living within your means, this is one country, especially here in the UAE, where almost everyone lives outside of their means, in every category. The poor person lives outside of their means. The rich person lives outside of their means. You see a school teacher with three supercars parked in his driveway. They're like, yeah, you're earning, mashallah, but you're earning, let's say you're earning 30,000 dirhams a month, 40,000 dirhams a month. How did you afford three supercars in your driveway? All of it is by debt. The house is built on debt. The cars are bought with debt. The money that is spent monthly is paid on debt. And the only thing this guy does with his salary is pay to, to the bank to, to cancel out some of the debt which they keep on adding on. We have to stop living in this system of debt. If you stop living in a system of debt, then in the first place you live within your means and you find that, yes, you have a very simple car. Yes, you have a very simple house. Maybe you can only rent, you can't afford to buy. Or you can't afford to buy for a long time. You have to save up your money. But wallahi, it gets out of these problems. So many people ask for loans because in the first place they have a habit of living in debt. That's their habit. I mean, they, they need a loan to pay off their debt that they took from another loan that they paid from another one. that they. Yes, there are times when you need to take debt. People go through financial difficulty. People lose their job. There are times when you need to take some debt to help you to, to go along. And the Prophet ﷺ took debt also. So there is not, it's not haram. But this problem of living in a lifestyle where everything is funded by debt. To the point where now, even people who are incredibly wealthy, you know, multi-millionaires are told, don't spend your money and buy things. Instead, take debt and invest your money in something else and then use your money, use your return on your investment to pay your debt. Can you imagine that? Someone has 10 million dirhams in the bank. He goes to buy a car, he buys it on finance. And you, why, your car is 100,000 dirhams. Why you, why you have 10 million in the bank. Why are you buying it on, on finance? Because my financial advisor told me it's better to keep my debt going and to use that 10 million dirhams to invest in something and then the return from that I will pay from my debt. And we're living in the society where even the rich live under a, a mountain of debt all the time. 
And this puts people into, into lying, into, into not paying things back, into riba, into so many types of haram. People get into riba because they are desperate, usually. And most people get into riba because they are desperate. So this is really important we understand that there are so many fundamental sunnahs that we have to change about the way that we live in order to get out of this interest-based society. And one of them is that we have to live within our means. We have to live within what Allah has given us. If that means we have to drive a very simple car, we have to drive a very simple car. If that means we have to rent a house because we can't afford to buy one, that means we have to rent. We have to live within our means. And Allah Azza wa Jal will put barakah in that means and give you the ability. But what we can't do is live outside of what we have and then we end up taking debt. And that debt is at best a shubha, at best. And at worst haram. And then the person starts to lie to pay back the debt and starts to rob Peter to pay Paul, like they say. And he starts taking debt from one guy to pay the other guy's debt. And then he starts taking a riba loan to pay this person's debt. And this person, he takes it from him to pay this person. And he's just robbing Peter to pay Paul. Instead of getting all of his creditors together and saying to them that, look, I want an out, a, a way out from this. So this is how it's going to be. I'm not going to take any more debt to pay anything. This is what you're going to get, and this is what you're going to get, and this is what you're going to get. And it's hard. Sometimes you will have to endure, you know, court cases. Sometimes you will have to suffer a lot of problems because of it. But ultimately, continuing to, to rob Peter to pay Paul is not the answer. And this is a real issue, Allah. That's why the Prophet ﷺ discouraged debt in general. Yes, it's needed sometimes, but use it when it's needed to the extent that it's needed. Don't use it to more than it's needed. Because this is where people get into lying and riba and breaking their promises and breaking their amanat and so on. And so this is something which is uh, important. Also, it's important that we as a community help each other. And we as a community help each other. I mean, if you find any, you find the balance between people, you can find a way to, for people to move forward in a way that benefits everybody. And Islam only brings benefit. Islam doesn't bring any harm. Islam brings benefit to people. So we look at the benefit of, you know, investment, of people, you know, trying to start something themselves. Everybody wins. The investor wants people to do well and the, the, the business wants to do well. As for people who give you a loan, and I mean by that an interest-based loan, it's not in their interest for you to do well. And this is one of the reasons why, in, why, why interest is haram. Because if you think about it, what would happen if your business was incredibly successful? You took a loan from the bank and your business was incredibly successful. You will pay the bank back their money and they will not get anything more from you. That's not in their interest. It's also not in their interest for you to fail miserably because then they will not get anything back. It's in their interest for you to be under their feet all the time. Not quite getting enough to pay them back, but just getting enough to keep on paying the interest every month. This is the bank's most profitable scenario. Their best case scenario is that the person will just have enough money only to service the debt, like they say. You will only have enough money to service the debt. 
That is the best case scenario for any bank that loans with interest. Is the person will only have enough money to service the debt. Not enough to pay it off, just to keep paying interest, 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 interest every month. That is why the banks offer you consolidation loans and they offer, you know, we'll take all of your debt and put it in one nice payment. Because you're just going to keep on paying for the rest of your life. And now if I look at, you know, people in the West and the, you know, which is a, like where everybody runs on interest. Most people until they are 60, 65, they have not paid off their debt. They are still paying all of their debts and their, con their consolidation loans and their credit cards and their, until they are 65, until they are 70. And if for 65, and how long? Maybe you can say for 45 years, the bank has been getting monthly payments from them. This is the ideal situation for them because the, every month they are getting a payment and they're never clearing the debt. As soon as they get, they, they're about to finish the mortgage, the bank says, maybe you can do an extension, you can have a conservatory, you can have a nice garage, you can have a nice you know, setup in your house, you can do your garden, and we'll just extend the debt a little bit more. So you keep on paying and paying and paying and paying and paying and paying. So this is one of the reasons why interest is, uh, is so uh, forbidden. Because it involves exploiting people. It lives out of, it, it thrives on people's suffering, on somebody suffering and somebody being in need, and somebody not being able to pay, or barely being able to pay. This is how it thrives and it benefits. Whereas investment is totally opposite to that. In, in investment, it's in your investor's interests for the business to do well. The more profit the business makes, the more money you get. So you want to help them out. You want to give them the money they need to start the business and you want to kind of make sure that you give them the advice to grow it and you take care of it and you make sure you look after them because if their business grows, you get more money back. It's in your interest and their interest. It's a mutually beneficial arrangement. Whereas interest only benefits the lender and only covers causes the buyer to, or the borrower to suffer. The last point that I'll mention about interest before we go on to talk about the madahib to conclude is the danger or the harm that interest does to the country. Because interest doesn't just harm the individual. We're living in an age where countries are so burdened with debt that they can't function. And that debt is used in order to blackmail those countries to act in a way that is, that is in the interests of the lender. So now poor countries are blackmailed by the interest loans that they have. And they have loans that are so big they can never, ever, ever repay them. There is no way, and it's impossible for a country to repay these huge interest loans that they take from the you know, IMF and the World Bank and whatever. They take these huge loans that it's impossible to ever repay. It's impossible. And so what they do is they end up again under the foot of that the lender. So the lender is able to say, no, no, I think you need to just calm down your Islamic education in your schools. I think you need to change this. I think you need to change that. I think you need to, uh, you know, you can't be doing this anymore. You can't be siding with this person anymore. Because of the interest debt that they are pushed under. And the poverty that creates. How many countries are burdened with interest so much that they are in poverty? Look at the poor countries in the world today like some of the countries where the economy has collapsed and they're suffering, a lot of them have collapsed because of interest-based loans that were put upon them that they couldn't, even, they couldn't even bear. In fact, wars have been caused by it. And it can be argued 
to a certain extent that World War II was caused by interest-based loans. Heavy, heavy, yani heavy, heavy yani d- demand of payments far in excess of what they were able to pay. So these all things, and it's a, it's a thing which destroys the individual, it destroys the society, it destroys uh, the economy, and generally it, it causes a lack of barakah in everything that we do. So I wanted to just yani, take 20 minutes just to encourage you guys and to try to sort this out. And there will be some people who will have some loan, some debt. But if you make a real intention to get rid of it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help you to get rid of it. Make an intention to really get rid of it once and for all. But it's going to require, as we said, lifestyle uh, changes. And there are some good videos also you can watch on YouTube about interest and the dangers of it. Um, not I'm talking about Islamic, I'm even talking about ones by, you know, just by economists that talk about how the danger that it causes for the society and the fact that they have to keep on getting more and more and more loans just to service the debt and so on. These are, there are some good beneficial things you can watch if you research the topic, which will give you even more confidence as to why Allah made riba haram. So this is something that we have to understand on, a, on the level of the society, on the level of the individual, the need to avoid riba. Some people may say, well, we live in a society where it's everywhere. That's true. But at the same time, you are able to, on a personal level, at least on a personal level, to change the situation that you live in, that your family lives in, that you know, your friends, your extended family, until the society will naturally, will naturally change, bi ta'ala. Okay, that being said, that was not part of the exam or part of the essentials as such. I just took a, a 20 minute uh, break just to talk to you about some of the issues of, of riba and some of the dangers of riba and the harms of riba uh, and some of the issues with regard to how we can live practically as Muslims without involving ourselves in it. What I want to go on to talk about in the last 45 minutes is to kind of conclude what we've been doing for the last eight weeks. So for the last eight weeks, we've been studying a book from a madhab. We've been studying Kafi al-Mubtadi and its shorter companion, Akhsar al-Mukhtasarat. What have we learned from studying these things? And what have we kind of seen to be the benefits and the pitfalls. I think all of you have experienced the benefits and experienced the negatives as well. I think from the negatives you've all experienced is people constantly coming and saying, when are you going to tell us what the right opinion is? Because you'll have noticed that all the way throughout this, there hasn't been any tarjih. There hasn't been anyone saying to you, this is correct, this is not correct. This opinion is valid, this opinion is not valid. Instead, we have been taking the madhab as it is, without a filter, directly. That should show you, first of all, that the truth is not found within any one madhab. This is very important. The truth is not found within any one madhab. There is no madhab not the madhab of Abu Hanifa or Malik or Shafi'i or Ahmed that gathers all of the truth together in one place. 
if it did, then it would be obligatory to follow it and it would be haram to follow anything else. None of these madahib gather the truth in one place. What they do is they form a curriculum for a student. So we set ourselves some questions to answer in the beginning of these, these classes. We asked ourselves, what is the benefit of the madhab and what is the harm of the madhab? And we asked ourselves, is it possible or permissible for an ordinary Muslim to follow a madhab? These questions are all questions which the scholars differ over. But the first thing that you must distinguish between is the difference between intisab and taqlid. Intisab is where you attribute yourself to the madhab. So you say, I am Muhammad Tim Al-Hanbali. Or I am Ahmad Al-Hanafi. Or I am Abdullah Al-Shafi'i. Or Al-Maliki. There is no harm in this intisab. There is no harm. And I don't know any of the scholars, I have not come across an opinion of any of the scholars who said that there is anything wrong with al-intisab, with affiliating yourself with a madhab. Like saying, I am Shafi'i, I am Hanafi, I am Maliki. There is no great harm in this issue. But that is a separate issue from the issue of whether you follow it blindly and absolutely or not. If we understand what a madhab is and what a madhab isn't, we may be able to answer this question better. A madhab, as we said, is a curriculum. It begins at a very basic level and it goes up to a very complicated level in a way that is consistent and structured and most importantly consistent with the usul of the imam how many issues have we needed to use qiyas analogy or ijtihad in order to reach a conclusion in other words we needed to use the tools of usul al-fiqh to reach a conclusion those tools of usul al-fiqh are consistent between the, the usul of the imam and the, the, the fiqh opinions of the imam. So it means that everything you've learnt in usul al-fiqh and everything you've learnt in the madhab kind of gel together and go together and work together. And so you have a curriculum that takes you from very, very, very basic level up to a very complicated level and it takes you step by step by step it's supposed to take you along with your usul al-fiqh and your qawaid shariah and all of these other sciences it's supposed to take you up to the level of ijtihad in reality not everybody will reach that level and many will not because in the first place ijtihad that requires a certain amount of, of, of a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in terms of a person's knowledge and memorization and so on but the madhab is like a scaffolding 
It's like you're building a house. And if you think of that house as, you know, as being built, this is when a person reaches the level of ijtihad. They are able to make decisions for themselves and make rulings for themselves without referring to any imam. And without any precedent, without referring to any imam. They never go back to the imam, they never ask about the imam or what the imam said or what the imam did. They themselves go into the Qur'an and the sunnah and they themselves implement what they find. The madhab is like scaffolding. You put it around and it provides you a way to build up that building. Level by level, step by step, piece by piece. As you go along, there will be times where you start to feel like you don't need certain parts of the scaffolding anymore. And this is where you pass into the level of At-Tarjih. You start to feel like you yourself are comfortable with certain things in choosing between the madahib and the different opinions. And choosing which opinion you believe to be stronger. So as you go along in your journey, you start to slowly remove pieces and put it on the side. You say, this piece the madhab tells me, I'm not confident about this. For example, you may come across the mas'ala of zakah on honey. And you say, the madhab tells me that there is 10% zakah on honey. But I have studied the ahadith and I'm confident that there is no zakah on honey. So I'm just going to remove this one little piece. I don't need it anymore. You haven't reached ijtihad yet. You haven't removed the whole thing. You just took one piece away because you didn't need it anymore. And slowly as you go, you keep taking pieces away because you keep finding, no, no, in, my, like in the beginning, no, I'm following what I learned in my books. But slowly I'm finding, no, I don't agree with this. I don't agree with that. I think this is better. I think that is better. Bearing in mind that these madahib gave you their opinions. They didn't just yani, tell you, like, okay, in Aqsar al-Muqtasarat, they just tell you. You know, there is 10% on honey, that's it, full stop. But in the more detailed books, they cover why, what is the reason, what is the dalil. And many times when you study it, you start, you're not convinced. You're, you don't feel confident with that. And so you pass into a level of tarjih, where you're not making your own opinions, but you feel the confidence to choose the right opinion among three or four different opinions that exist. And this is the right opinion. And that's not like an absolute thing. It's a slow thing. Right now, many of you will have certain things where you have a preferred opinion because you've really studied this issue in detail and you really feel confident in choosing that preferred opinion. As you study more, you will develop more and more preferred opinions. And less and less you will follow strictly what the madhab says. So you're still within the madhab, but you start to have your own preferences and you start to take a little bit from here, a little bit from here. You say that, Wallahi, the, the Hanbali position on this is like this, but I think that the Maliki position is stronger. Having studied the evidence of both, I feel that the Maliki position is stronger and this is what I'm confident with. 
And so you start slowly to remove the scaffolding. You get further and further and further and further on and you're removing more and more pieces because you're more and more confident to choose your own opinions. But you're still choosing opinions from what other scholars have made. You're not choosing opinions from your own mind. You're not going into the Qur'an and making a fatwa. What you're doing is, what did the Maliki say? What did the Shafi'i say? What did al-Shawkani say? What did al-San'ani say? What did al-Bukhari say? And you are choosing the one that you believe to be the most correct. This is a phase you go through. And then ultimately, the final phase, for those who reach it, is that you reach the level of ijtihad. And in this phase, you no longer look to see what Al-Bukhari said, in, not in terms of hadith, but in terms of fiqh. Nor do you look to see what Abu Hanifa said. Nor do you look to see what Ahmed said. You go directly to the Qur'an and the Sunnah and you have your own opinion, which is yours and yours alone. And that is very rare. It's very rare, especially in these days. The later the times get, the more rare it becomes. To the point that even some of the scholars said that it doesn't exist. I think that is an exaggeration, but some of them said to the point that they said it doesn't exist anymore. Because of the so few people that reach that particular level. But still, the, you know, the aim is to just keep on progressing. The aim is not to be within the madhab forever. Because remember, we started with a principle that the truth is not there. So if you stay locked within this madhab forever, you will be doing things that are wrong. Because the truth is not in that madhab. It doesn't exist there. So your aim is to get to that level where you can take the scaffolding away and you can bring the different parts in. But that's not possible for a person to do immediately. Not in every issue. Right? So you, what you will find is that it's not possible. In the beginning, all of us start off with taqlid. It doesn't matter whether you want to or you don't. You can say, I'm ghayr muqallid. I don't follow anyone. Wallahi, you are muqallid. Before you even you say ghayr muqallid, you are muqallid. If you want it or you don't. Because ultimately, you are still following something. You are following your teacher. You are following his opinion of which is right or which is wrong. You may not be following a madhab, but you're following someone or something. You can't start off you know, the day that you reach, you know, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years old, and you start having an opinion in every fiqh mas'ala across the board. It doesn't happen like that. What you do is you end up following your teacher, you follow his opinions, and then after a while you move away. And the same thing will happen to you. For the beginning, many of you will take what I told you in the class. After a while, you'll come with your own opinions and you'll say that, I've studied this mas'ala and I think Muhammad Tim was wrong. I don't think he was right. I don't think this opinion that he said is the correct opinion is the correct opinion anymore. And that is a natural progression that happens in every form of knowledge. Every form of knowledge has this. Whatever you learn, you start off with training wheels. You start off with stabilizers on your bike. Slowly you take the training wheels off and you ride for yourself. In the beginning, you start with taqlid. Whether it is taqlid of a madhab or taqlid of a sheikh or... Whatever it is, but you start with taqlid, whether you like it or not. Slowly, you progress out of that shadow into the area where you start to pick and choose opinions. Not randomly, 
We're not talking about somebody who doesn't know anything. Just yesterday he learned how to pray. And he says, my opinion about the niqab is dot dot dot. You don't have a right to an opinion. You don't have a right to an opinion. Until you develop enough knowledge to be able to weigh the arguments up and to really have one opinion over the other. Otherwise it's just following hawa, it's just desires. Like you see so many people. Wallah, like you see people, this is so common. You see a guy with a trim beard. You say to him, why do you trim your beard? He say, I follow the opinion of Shaykh al-Albani. La wallah. Don't do an injustice to Shaykh al-Albani. Say, I follow my hawa, I follow my desires. Because wallah, you don't know the opinion of Shaykh al-Albani. Hatta and you don't know the opinion of the other mashayikh either. And you don't know the dalil for it, and you don't know the usul. So how can you follow the opinion of Shaykh al-Albani? All you're doing is just yani, following desires. If however someone said, I follow my teacher and he, for example he was studying from Shaykh al-Albani and he, he followed his teacher in this or Shaykh al-Albani was the most knowledgeable person he had access to and he asked him the fatwa, no problem, this is different. I'm talking about the people who choose an opinion that is suitable for them because they've decided in the fiqhi issues that they, that's the opinion they follow. Like the woman who says, I don't believe the niqab is fard. Okay, have you studied the issue? Have you understood the dalil? Have you understood the usul? Have you understood the principles? Or you just don't want to wear the niqab? There's a difference between one or the other. That's different from the one who said, No, I studied from my teacher. My teacher told me it's not. There's a difference. My teacher told me it's not fard. No problem. Go with your teacher for now until you discover what you believe to be the truth. My teacher told me it's not far. Versus someone who says, no, my opinion. You have an opinion? And you know, it's not like you, you slowly develop an opinion in things. Does that mean that, you, that someone will have no... No, there will be issues where you have studied them in detail and you have something which is... You have a right to an opinion in them. But slowly, 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 slowly. Step by step. So if we've said that taqlid is a necessity... In terms of it, you have to have a point where you're following someone. Does that mean that you have to follow a madhab? No, it doesn't. And this is the opinion of the Jumhur from the Malikiyah and the Shafi'iyah and the Hanabila and a group of the Hanafis who said that it does not, having taqlid does not mean taqlid of a madhab. They said taqlid means that you ask the most knowledgeable person that is available to you. So at this time, I'm in a Shafi'i country. And the most knowledgeable person I know is the Imam of my masjid. And I say to him, Shaykh, I'm traveling. Am I allowed to join my prayers or not? And he gives me an answer. No problem. You ask the most knowledgeable person that you had access to and you followed his opinion because you didn't have anything better. You didn't have any ability to wait up or to choose or to look. At the moment you took his opinion, you asked the most knowledgeable person and you took his opinion. No problem. Is it then necessary that I should go to that same imam always now for every question and I'm not allowed to ask any other imam? No, it's not necessary. You may ask anyone. Is it necessary that I should only ask Shafi'i scholars because that Imam was Shafi'i? No, it's not necessary. It's not necessary. You ask the most knowledgeable person you have access to. This is the opinion of the Jumhur, of the majority. 
In fact, the majority said that an ordinary Muslim is incapable of following a madhab strictly. Because they said that as an ordinary, you, you guys have just studied, you know, like a few pages from the most basic book in the Hanbali madhab. Was it easy or a little bit? It was a little bit hard. And it was a little bit, there was a little bit tough, right? It was a little bit, there were times when it was a little bit difficult to understand. You're expecting somebody who just prays five times a day, doesn't study anything about Islam, to know Aqsar al Muhtasarat from beginning to end, and to know the Masail and the Tarjih of the Hanabil, and to know which one is the opinion of Imam Ahmed and which of the two opinions of Imam Ahmed is correct. You expect somebody who is just, you know, going to work every day and praying five times a day to know that? That's not possible to even ask them to do. A group of the Hanafis said, no, it is possible. And that is why you tend to see the staunchest of the madhahib in following the madhab are the Hanafis, without any disrespect. I mean, they are the ones who are, the, you know, the ones who don't leave their madhab ever. Because this is the opinion of the madhab, that it's possible for an ordinary person to be Hanafi and to follow the Hanafi madhab strictly. And to be fair, and they do a good job of doing that, yani, like of, of, of the people being, people are generally much more aware of a madhab. And if you ask a Hanafi about his madhab, be much more aware of it than if you ask a Shafi'i or a Maliki or a Hanbali. Because the strictness is more, there is more strict following. But that's a side issue. Many of the scholars said an ordinary Muslim cannot do it. It's impossible. Because he cannot, like, you're expecting someone to study the, the books of the madhab and to know which is the right opinion and which is the wrong opinion? No. What you can do is to ask your shaykh. But when you ask your shaykh, you're effectively making taqlid of the shaykh, not taqlid of the madhab. Because the shaykh is going to give you fatawa that are his tarjih, that are his preference, his choice. He may choose between the two opinions of Imam Ahmed and he may give you one of them and not give you the other one. He may prefer the opinion of Shaykh Islam ibn Taymiyyah in one of the Masail. Where he prefers it over the opinion of the standard opinion of the Madhab. So now who are you making taqlid of? You're making taqlid of Imam Ahmed or you're making taqlid of the Imam? You're making taqlid of the Imam. And this is what the Jumhur said, the majority said. They said that even if you try to follow a madhab, try all you want. The end of what you will reach is you will end up following your sheikh or your imam. And this is what we said in the first place. I and mean, this is what we said you can do in the first place. So sometimes those people who get really mutaassib on the madhab and they really like, you know, fly the flag of the madhab and I'm following this madhab and this is my madhab and this is what I do. The reality is you're not following Imam Al-A'zam, the great imam, you know, the oldest of the imma, Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah ta'ala. You're not following Abu Hanifa. You're following the imam of your local masjid who is giving you the filter of what Abu Hanifa said. He's choosing the opinion that he likes, he prefers of the different opinions that are narrated. Sometimes he will choose the opinion of Abu Yusuf over the opinion of Abu Hanifa. So all of this argument that you're following the greatest imam and the oldest imam and the most knowledgeable and the one with the most knowledgeable of the Sahaba is complete falsehood from beginning to end. Because Aslan, you're not following the imam in the first place. You're following the sheikh who gives you the fatwa. That's all. You're following the sheikh who gives you the fatwa. That's it. 
And so what we said is, if you use a madhab for what it's good for, a madhab is good for studying fiqh. That's what a madhab is good for. And it's exceptionally good, tried and tested way of studying fiqh. It will take you through all of the issues. It will give you an opinion for all of them. It will give you the evidence for that opinion. It will give you the principles to be able to build your own opinions. And it will take you at least to the level of tarjih, if not to the level of ijtihad. That's what a madhab is good for. And it will benefit you immensely if you use it for that. In fact, if you try to learn fiqh without going through the madhab, it is extremely difficult. I'm not going to say impossible, but I'm going to say it's really hard. Because you are not able to have what we call tarkiz or, or concentration on the issues. Because you're taking from here and there. And it's not, it's not standardized. It's not following a particular set of steps. It's not getting easy and then more difficult. It's just picking from here and there. To the point that some of the brothers who became mashayikh, and I read a quote from one of the mashayikh, he said, I used to, you know, when I was young, I used to be really, you know, mutahamis and keen for the sunnah. So I said, I'm not going to learn fiqh from a madhab. I'm going to learn fiqh from the kitab and the sunnah. That's it. He said, I studied 10 years before I realized that the way of the salaf is to study fiqh from a madhab. And I realized that that 10 years of studying fiqh didn't benefit me anything. In my, in my development of fiqh It benefited me as a person I, I learned how to pray I learned how to fast I learned how to, you know, how to give my zakah But it didn't, in terms of my, my fiqh knowledge As a student of knowledge It didn't get me anywhere The madhab is a tried and tested way of learning fiqh But as soon as you start to see it as the haqq from Allah This is where you go wrong It is not, the madhab was not brought down by Jibreel as is clear to everybody The madhab was not brought down by Jibreel It has mistakes in it It has errors in it It has weak hadith in it It has false conclusions in it It has misconceptions in it It has times when the imam changed his opinion It has times when the student picked the wrong opinion of the imam But as a method for developing your skills as a student of fiqh It is unrivaled and it is what the early generations used to use to learn fiqh. To learn fiqh. Because you cover all of the issues with structure, with step by step by step by step. And you benefit immensely from it. But as soon as you start believing that this madhab is the truth from Allah, this is where we have the problem. So what you do when you learn the madhab is... You learn it as a learning method As a method of learning as a, as a curriculum What you do is You bear in mind That the opinions you read May not be the correct opinions Does that mean you disregard them? No Take everything on board And when you find out That something is wrong Correct it In your notes In your, you know, in your book of the madhab Underline the 10% on honey Make a note and say Note hadith this Hadith number this Hadith number this 
correct opinion is no zakah on honey. That's if you take that opinion. You might take the opinion that 10% is correct anyways. But that's an example. And you go like this. There's nothing wrong with taking an opinion on board from a great imam, from one of the great imams of Islam. There's no issue with that. And you're going to benefit from it. But when you realize that the imam is wrong, so the first thing you've got to have in your head is it is possible for the imam to be wrong. And this is the most, wallahi, this is the strangest situation that people can't accept this. How can a person say that it's not possible for my imam to be wrong? The imam is a human being, he's not ma'asum. Everyone after the Prophet ﷺ can be right and can be wrong. Didn't the Prophet ﷺ say to Abu Bakr, Asabta ba'dan wa akhta'ta ba'dan? You made a mistake in some of it and you were right in some of it? If he said that to Abu Bakr, then how about everybody else? He said to Abu Bakr, when Abu Bakr interpreted the dream, you were right in some of it and wrong in some of it. And if he said that to Abu Bakr, then everyone after that is the same. You're right in some of it and wrong in some of it. The opinions of Abu Hanifa, he's right in some of them and wrong in some of them. Malik, he's right in some of them, wrong in some of them. Didn't Imam Malik say Everyone has some of their statements accepted And some of their statements rejected Except for the person in this grave And he pointed to the grave of the Prophet Isn't it the case that some of the opinions of Umar Were not accepted by the Sahaba Some of the opinions of Uthman Were not accepted Everyone can have something right and something wrong and so we come to the statement of Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala. And this statement is the, you know, this is, this is the last thing you need to say about a madhab. It just nicely concludes it. And Imam al-Shafi'i said, the scholars have ijma' consensus. Now bear in mind, he's narrating that consensus from whom? Who did Imam al-Shafi'i meet? He studied with Al-Imam Malik. He studied Al-Muwatta from Al-Imam Malik. And he studied from the students of Abu Hanifa. So this is the consensus of the students of Abu Hanifa and Malik and Al-Shafi'i. And he was a, a colleague or a, a, a co-student with Al-Imam Ahmed. He was the teacher of Al-Imam Ahmed and also he was, he, he was alongside Al-Imam Ahmed in some of the things that they studied. So Al-Imam Shafi'i is probably the one that you can say has met Virtually yani all of the Imams He didn't meet Abu Hanifa But he met the students of Abu Hanifa And so he's, he covers all of the four Imams And he says the scholars have consensus Ijma' He didn't say ittifaq Or he said ajma' al-ulama And there is ijma' on this issue That whoever is sunnah of the messenger of Allah Sallallahu alayhi wasallam Becomes clear to him it is not permissible for him to leave it for the statement of anyone else, whoever they are. This is the ijma' of the ummah. If you realize that you've taken an opinion in the madhab and the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam, it becomes clear to you. Now he said, istabana lahu. The sunnah becomes clear to you. Now that might be not the case. Maybe in these issues you've studied here, the sunnah is not clear to you. So you carry on. You took from your teacher, you took your teacher's opinion and you carry on. 
But when the sunnah becomes clear to you, it's not allowed for you to take the opinion of anyone else. It's not allowed, it's not halal for you to take the opinion of anyone else, kainan man kan, whoever that person is. It's not allowed. So you use the madhab as a curriculum for studying fiqh. You don't necessarily use it as a way of practicing your religion, although it doesn't hurt if that is the only way that you've learned. Like, because you may learn your religion in one of two ways in terms of your personal practices. You might have a teacher who teaches you without the madhab. You might have a teacher that teaches you with the madhab. Both of those are okay. So for example, we have a, a class on salah. My class on salah, it might be that when I teach salah, I teach it from my own uh, tarjih, my own opinions and preferences. It might be that I teach it from a book of a madhab. It doesn't really matter too much. The first one is probably better than the second one, but it depends on the quality of the teacher. You may learn salah from a book of the madhab, or you may learn salah from a teacher who goes outside of the madhab. In any case, you have now learned that to practice your religion in terms of how you pray. When you study fiqh from within the madhab, you may well uh, find things in there that are different. The most important thing is when the sunnah becomes clear to you, you take the sunnah. This is what matters. When the sunnah becomes clear to you, you take the sunnah, even if that sunnah is not in your madhab. Even if that sunnah is not in the four madhahib, there are times, not many, but there are times when the sunnah is found outside of the four madhahib. And all of the four madhahib say that something is the case and the sunnah indicates that it is the opinion of someone else. Now that doesn't mean that it's not ijma' because bear in mind the four madhahib do not constitute consensus. You might have an Imam al-Bukhari has an opinion on something and the four madhahib are against it. For example, those of you who believe that you have to recite Surah Al-Fatiha in every raka'ah, even if you meet the Imam when he's in ruku'ah, you have to repeat the raka'ah. And some of you may hold this opinion. And the Imam is in ruku'ah and you come in, you make ruku'ah at the Imam and you repeat the raka'ah because you didn't read Surah Al-Fatiha. Some of you may hold this opinion. This opinion goes against all of the four madhahib. The Hanafis, Maliki, Shafi'is and Hanbalis agreed that catching the Imam in Ruku' is enough to catch the Raka'ah. Okay, who's on the other side? Al-Imam al-Bukhari, al-Sana'ani, al-Shawkani. A huge number of, of prominent scholars on the other side, they said no. The Sunnah is that the, that the Raka'ah is not enough, the Ruku' is not enough. To catch the raka'ah, you must have read Surah Al-Fatiha. For those of you who take that opinion, you're taking an opinion which goes against all of the four madahib. But if you believe that's where the sunnah lies, and that's where the sunnah has been made clear to you, then that's acceptable. Because the truth doesn't have to be even within all four. The truth could be outside. Although that doesn't happen very often. It's not a lot of times that happens, but sometimes it happens. When you study the madhab, as we said, you begin with very simple books without dalil. Then you go through the book again with some evidences. Then you start getting ikhtilaf in the madhab, differences of opinion in the madhab. And you choose the, 
you know, you, you, your teacher or your, the author will choose for you the stronger opinion in the madhab. All of this time you're gaining more ability to choose between opinions. And finally, when you've finished the last sort of books of the madhab, where do you go? You go into al-fiqh al-muqaran, comparative fiqh, comparing between what the Hanafi said and what the Shafi'i said and what the Maliki said and what the Hanbali said and why they disagreed, what was the sabab al-khilaf, the reason why they disagreed and what was the evidence that each one put forward. And again, I want you to, to really understand that there are evidences in this. It's not like Abu Hanifa just you know, sat in a room and just said, this is the opinion. No, he said, this is the opinion because of this hadith and this hadith and this hadith and because of this ayah and because of this qiyas and this principle. They gave the reasons for those opinions. You then go and study what those reasons were, what the reasons of the Malikis were, what the reasons of the Shafi'is were, and you come up with something we call sababul khilaf, the cause of the disagreement. And you'll be surprised. Often the cause of the disagreement is not what you would think. It's not about a hadith, the authenticity of a hadith or something like that. The cause of the disagreement may be often an usuli principle, a principle of usul or a principle of uh, which is uh, from the qawaid, you know, something that is specific to that imam. And this is the reason why they dis- disagree. And then you yourself come to a conclusion about which of those disagreements is the correct way. And by the time you've finished doing comparative fiqh, of course, you're not like you finished, but I mean when you've, you know, you've finished your syllabus in comparative fiqh, you should have firmly reached the level where you are choosing the opinion that you believe is the strongest in relation to the sunnah. So you begin with a book like Akhsar al-Muhtasarat, you move up to a book maybe like we said, Dalil al-Talib, some, you have some evidences, you start looking at some ahadith, you start understanding why the madhab takes that opinion. Maybe at this point you start thinking, oh, some of those hadith are weak. Maybe I don't take this opinion. Slowly, slowly. Then again, you go up to differences of opinion in the madhab. And then when you do that, you start thinking, well, why did he disagree with him? Ah, maybe it's because of this. And you start forming your own opinions. And then you start looking at the difference between the Hanafis, the Maliki, Shafi'is, and Hanbalis, and everybody else. And you start forming lots of your own opinions and ultimately you reach the level where you have a set of opinions which you believe to be the sunnah. And you will also be wrong. Like those, if those imams were wrong then for certain, you will also be wrong. You will also, in your set of opinions that you have chosen as the sunnah, as you understand, you will also not be correct. There will be opinions that you have chosen that are not correct. But you genuinely, firmly, with study and understanding, believe those to be the sunnah, you have to follow them. Until it becomes clear to you that the sunnah lies somewhere else. And as we said, there is no harm in intisab, in saying that I am Hanafi or Maliki or Shafi'i. If that means for you that you have studied from those books to begin with, or that's the first set you studied from, or the first sheikh that taught you fiqh was from that madhab, and if you don't want to make intisab, you don't have to. You don't have to say, I'm Shafi'i, I'm Maliki, I'm Hanafi. It's not required that you have to say one. But in reality, if you studied fiqh from a madhab, you'll have studied from something first. And generally, that will be the one that you attribute yourself to. Unless, you know, like I said, I didn't, this is not intended, this little essentials lecture was not intended to force a madhab upon you. 
The fact that you studied Aksar al-Muqtasarat Doesn't mean that now you all have to be Hanbali No, like, khalas, if you think it's better for you to study Hanafi fiqh And you have mashayikh who are teaching you Hanafi fiqh Go and study Hanafi fiqh, no problem If you have mashayikh who are teaching you Shafi'i fiqh And that's what you, want, you think will be most beneficial for you No problem If you haven't made a choice Then I think that choice depends on the circumstances of the country you come from and the country you live in. Because it depends on uh, the country you come from in the sense that if you give da'wah there, it helps to know the madhab of the country that you are, go, that you are you know, giving da'wah in. It helps. Because then it stops you falling you know, sh- into issues of muru'ah. Where you might do something which is okay in your madhab but it's not okay for them and they get upset by it. Which you could leave off. You know, for example, if you go to a country where the Hanafi madhab is predominant and you don't know that they don't eat shellfish and you know you go there like, you know, eating certain things, people may look upon you in a, you know, in a bad way and, and dis- disregard your da'wah and say that, you know, this person is, eats haram and doesn't, you know, and they don't know that it's not, you don't consider it to be haram. So the point is that you know, knowing the madhab of the country you come from is useful. And knowing the madhab of the country you're in. Because you f- will generally find teachers. And uh, in general, you know that in terms of Saudi, for those of you who mostly study from Saudi scholars, Saudi is a Hanbali, generally a Hanbali country. And so it's, in Saudi, it's pretty hard to learn a madhab other than the Hanbali madhab. You can find a Shafi'i teacher, but you have to look for one and then get one and then you know you may, he might not teach you all of the books but Hanbali Madhab you can find in every masjid in every place you'll find people teaching the Hanbali Madhab in Saudi here in the Emirates generally between the Shafi'i it's mostly Shafi'i but you can also find Hanbali as well you can find like teachers teaching the Hanbali Madhab but you can also find a lot of teachers teaching the Shafi'i Madhab in my opinion broadly I don't want to use the best, that's the wrong term, but the most beneficial two of the two to study, of the four to study, that is just for you, if you haven't, if you don't have a particular preference, I would say is either the Shafi'i or the Hanbali uh, Madahib. Because generally they are, the, the study of them is generally easier and their usul are generally closer to the the ahadith uh, and it's generally also the case that they have very strong principles and it's you know that are that are easy and and well documented for you to follow but again if you come from a country where the maliki madhab is predominant there is nothing wrong if you come from a country where the hanafi madhab is predominant and you choose to study that first just be aware that what you're studying is not the truth it is only a curriculum that you follow step by step to take you to a certain destination It doesn't necessarily have to be The truth And that is why you see Scholars from every madhab Praying in ways that are different From the way that their madhab says In giving fatawa That are different from what their madhab says Because they recognize that the truth Is not restricted within the madhab So that is the conclusion That we wanted inshallah to come to And I think as we said The conclusion with regard to the ordinary Muslim Is that it is difficult I'm not going to say impossible but it is difficult for an ordinary Muslim to follow a particular madhab strictly. And it's better for the ordinary Muslim 
to ask the most knowledgeable person they have access to. Ask the people of the remembrance if you don't know. And that is why that is the norm that we do here. People will come and ask you in the masjid. They will not say, I'm Hanafi, give me a Hanafi answer. I'm Shafi'i, give me a Shafi'i answer. They will just come and ask you, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do that? And that way is fine, inshaAllah ta'ala. But you can't study fiqh like that as in terms of progressing as a student because you will not have a cohesive, coherent set of rules that you can, that you can follow in terms of your learning. So hopefully this has answered the questions. We are scheduled, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, next week to have uh, an exam. Uh, the exam will not be on that middle, little middle part of today, just on the issues that we've studied in the book, Akhsar al-Mukhtasarat, and what we've just covered now, in terms of the, the conclusion of, the, of what we studied in, in the Madahib. The exam will be very similar to how we did the last one, inshallah. Uh, not a lot of differences, but the difference might be there might be some text box questions with regard to what, you've st- what we've talked about now, like explain the value of a madhab to a student, or um, is, it, is it allowed to, to follow a madhab, explain your answer, you know, you say yes or you say no, and then you explain why. Um, you know, you've got to give some nuances in that. You can't give a blank answer that yes. Absolutely or no, never. You've got to give a nuanced answer. But to a certain extent, yes. And to a certain extent, no. And this is when it's allowed and this is when it's not allowed. So those kind of questions might come uh, towards the end. After that, we will have a lesson. But we will not have a lesson. It will not be on the topic because this is our last lesson of the... It'll be our, next week will be our last lesson of the, the, this year of the essentials. So we will not have that lesson... Um, on the same topic Probably it will be uh, A nasiha and just In terms of how you study Islam And how you benefit from the essentials and, and how you progress With yourself in terms of study And where you should go from here um, That kind of thing inshallah. That will be after the exam And we're obviously one week delayed Because we missed a week due to the spring camp What happened is the spring camp graduation Was at 8.30 in the morning so there was no way that I could have come here and gone to the sp- also done the graduation for the spring camp the two of them would not go together so that's why we, we had to cancel that week so that is all we have time for and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best wassalatu wassalam ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in